The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, I, I know that we're still missing Dr. Mu Yangwa, but since she's a Marylander, we'll excuse her whenever time she gets here, so that'll be fine. Uh, let me uh, first uh, thank our uh, nominees and thank the uh, committee. We adjusted the time uh, because of the schedule changes here. Uh, there are uh, bill signings taking place. We have, of course, the issues in regards to Ukraine. We'll have President Zelensky uh, before a virtual uh, a joint meeting of, of the members of Congress tomorrow. So it, it's a crowded agenda. So first, let me thank uh, our nominees for their willingness to be flexible on time and the members of the committee. I particularly want to thank Senator Haggerty. He'll be here shortly for his cooperation in adjusting the, uh, the calendar. He's, uh, the Republicans did have a lunch today, so he may be a few minutes late getting here but he said it was perfectly okay for us to start the hearing in order to give maximum time uh, for our, our witnesses, our nominees, and the, uh, the questioning by members of the committee. I want to thank all four of our nominees uh, for these positions. Uh, these are extremely uh, well-qualified individuals who have devoted themselves to diplomacy, a career in public service, uh, and have served our nation and are willing now to take on responsibilities in critically important positions at any time, but particularly now, the challenges that we have uh, in, in our country. I also want to extend my thanks to your families, because we know that public service is a family sacrifice, and we thank them very much for their willingness to, to uh, allow your service uh, for our country. I'm going to give a short introductions uh, to our uh, four nominees, and then we'll hear from you, uh, and uh, we will have questions by members of the uh, committee. First on our list is Bernadette Meehan, who is nominated uh, to be the ambassador of the United States to the Republic of Chile. She currently serves as Executive Vice President of Global Programs at the Obama Foundation, where she served previously as Chief International Officer and Executive Director of International Programs. Prior to that, she was a Career Foreign Service Officer and worked in multiple positions in National Security Council, including as a Senior Advisor, as a Special Assistant to the President and National Security Council Spokesperson, and earlier as Director for Strategic Communications. She also served as special assistant to the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, and served overseas in UAE, Iraq, and Colombia, and has served with bravery in some of our most uh, dangerous uh, situations. Uh, Dr. John Kengasong uh, is currently the, uh, well, has been nominated to be the ambassador at large of the United States government activities to combat HIV AIDS globally. Uh, he is currently the director of African Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Ethiopia. Prior to that, he was the acting deputy director of the Center for Global Health at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Before that, the chief of International Laboratory Branch Division of Global HIV AIDS and Tuberculosis at CDC. He also served as the associate director for laboratory science in the Division for Global AIDS, HIV, and Tuberculosis at the Center for Global Health and co-chair of PEPFAR's Laboratory Technical Working Group. Dr. Monde Mugangwa 
uh, has been nominated to be the Assistant Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, and she is from Maryland, as I've indicated before. We will give her uh, a little bit of a preference as a result of that, and then we know that she'll be with us uh, shortly. She's in the building and on her way up to, uh, to the... Uh, she is the Director of African Programs at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, she served as the Academic Dean of the African Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University, where she also served as Professor of Civil-Military Relations. She also worked as Director of Research and then Vice President for Research and Policy of the National Summit on Africa. Prior to that, she worked as Director of International Education Programs at New Mexico Highlands University. And then lastly, we have Rebecca Gonzalez, who's been nominated uh, to be the Senior Foreign Service Class of Minister Counselor to be Director of the Office of Foreign Missions. Uh, she is currently serving as the U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Lesotho. Previously, she served as the Chief of Staff in the Bureau of Administration at the Department of State. She has also served as the Deputy Executive Director of the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs as Deputy Manager Counselor at the U.S. Embassies in Pretoria, South Africa, Management Officer at the U.S. Embassy in Botswana, and Special Assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Management of the Department of State. Other assignments for Ambassador Gonzalez include service in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs in the U.S. Embassies in Saudi Arabia, India, Colombia, and Greece. Wow. Let me just tell you something. We have four very impressive individuals who have served our country with great distinction. And we are really honored to have you before us and your willingness to, to continue to serve our nation. So we thank you for that. Uh, as I've indicated earlier, uh, when Senator Haggerty gets here, we will allow him to give his opening comments. Uh, but we'll start with uh, Ms. Meehan. You may, uh, your full testimony will be made part of our record. And you may proceed as you wish. Please try to keep your comments to no more than five minutes. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and distinguished members of the committee, I am deeply honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Chile. I am grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence that they have placed in me. I want to thank my husband, Evan, here with me today, my parents, Terry and Joe, and my sister, Liz, for their love and support and note how much we love and miss my younger brother, Chris, who passed away last summer. I'd also like to express my love for my daughter, Millie, who at three years old is the light of my life and reminds me every day how rewarding and challenging it is to be a working mom. Over 25 years, I have been fortunate to hold diverse positions in the government, nonprofit, and private sectors, but the highest privilege was representing my country for 13 years as a career foreign service officer. It would be the honor of my life to return to the service of the American people as a U.S. diplomat. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the Congress to advance the interests of the United States in Chile. While serving in Colombia on my first tour as a foreign service officer, I was abducted and assaulted by armed assailants. During my year in Iraq, I witnessed every day the dangers facing Americans, diplomats, military, NGO staff, journalists, and civilians. I am proud to volunteer with a nonprofit organization that supports families of Americans taken hostage or wrongfully detained abroad and the former hostages and detainees when they return home. These experiences ingrained in me the solemn responsibility the U.S. government has 
and if confirmed, the safety of American citizens will be my highest priority. I first visited Chile in 1992, when I was a 16-year-old high school exchange student in Argentina. On school break, I joined my host family on a bus trip across Patagonia and Magallanes to Punta Arenas, Chile. In the 30 years since, Chile has undergone enormous changes. The United States' relationship with Chile is one of the strongest, most diverse, and most beneficial in the Western Hemisphere. From trade and investment, to cooperation in science, technology, and defense, to promoting good governance and human rights throughout the region. For over 30 years, Chile has been a champion of democracy and free and fair trade, and a like-minded partner with robust economic, academic, and cultural ties. Chile is also a leader in calling out human rights abuses and undemocratic practices in Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. If confirmed, I will build on our shared values to continue this important and productive partnership with a focus on three areas. First, supporting Chile's vibrant democracy at a pivotal moment in Chile's history, with free and fair elections last year that set a powerful example for the region and the world, and a constitutional assembly that is channeling grievances into a peaceful and democratic reform process. If confirmed, I look forward to working with President Boric and his administration and offering US support to the Chilean government and civil society organizations as they seek to deliver greater economic opportunity and social equality to the Chilean people. Second, promoting economic opportunity and trade that will benefit all Americans and Chileans. Our free trade agreement has nearly quadrupled bilateral trades in goods, propelling job creation and economic growth in both countries. The United States is Chile's number one source of foreign direct investment with $23 billion in FDI. And the Department of Commerce reports that US exports to Chile support an estimated 87,000 American jobs. I believe Chile's commendable tradition of openness combined with a responsible investment screening mechanism that considers national security interests would maintain the security of Chile's critical infrastructure and sensitive technologies, as well as Chile's attractiveness to foreign investors. To protect and expand US business opportunities, if confirmed, I will advocate for a continued business climate in Chile that is based on respect for free trade, democracy, and democratic good governance. Third, bolstering our already strong collaboration in science, technology, and innovation, including on priorities such as investing in renewable energy and combating the climate crisis, as well as space, health, and emerging technologies. US investment in scientific infrastructure in Chile exceeds $1 billion. Chile is a leader on oceans and climate issues and in deploying clean energy such as solar, wind, and hydrogen. Chile is also a world leader in vaccinating its people against COVID-19. The United States values our partnerships with Chile in these areas, and if confirmed, I will work to expand them. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much uh, for your, your testimony. We'll, we'll now hear from Dr. Kangaysong. Chairman Karin, Ranking Member Hegarty, members of the committee, I'm deeply honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee as the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator to lead and coordinate PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. I'm immensely grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for entrusting me at a critical time as we face the fight against a dual pandemic, uh, HIV AIDS and COVID-19. I want to thank my lovely wife, Susan, and our three wonderful children, Pete, 
Gladys and Paul for their patience and support all the years as I have pursued a career in global health. If confirmed, I would assume leadership of an unprecedented initiative with a long history of strong bipartisan congressional leadership and a proven track record of life-saving work. Since 2003, when Congress and President Bush created PEPFA, it has saved more than 21 million lives and prevented millions of HIV infections, including in children. PEPFA has been strengthened over the last 19 years through continued American generosity and a conviction to finish the fight against HIV AIDS. Despite COVID-19, PEPFA has proven remarkably resilient in protecting and advancing HIV gains, as well as creating the backbone to fight other health threats, including COVID-19. I know this to be true as I've lived it and seen firsthand the positive impact it has had on people around the world. If confirmed, I will draw upon my three decades of program and research experience in public health and HIV to advance PEPFAR's mission, assure that it continues its success, collaborate with partner countries and communities, and sustain the strong partnership it enjoys with Congress, including all of you. If confirmed, I would be stepping into this role at a critical moment when the world is confronting with a dual pandemic. We have seen how COVID-19 has affected some HIV programs with devastating results, but we've also witnessed how the health systems and institutions built and strengthened by PEPFAR investment have been central to COVID-19 response. If confirmed, our work and focus on continuing our fight against HIV AIDS in close collaboration with countries and communities, while also acknowledging and appreciating the broader context that would determine the success of our actions. As the director of the Africa CDC, I've seen how PEPFAR's investment in health systems have strengthened and in some cases established the fundamental health infrastructures, laboratory systems, surveillance and human resources for health in the countries where we have served. In the past, efforts around HIV were premised upon building health systems around the world. The goal now must shift, and I believe our efforts must now ensure that these services and systems are sustainable, resilient to prevent and respond to HIV AIDS, including pediatric HIV AIDS, in the future, as well as other diseases. For this to happen, it is my belief that we need to capitalize on the capacity and experience of those in the countries where we work with a deep respect for their perspectives and needs and taking into account their knowledge and local expertise. As we continue our fight towards sustaining epidemic control of HIV AIDS, the key task ahead of us will involve doubling down on evidence-based interventions to address local contexts. We must work in partnership with communities and countries to ensure that we have enabling environments that leave nobody behind. For health systems to be sustainable and keep infectious diseases in check, we must act collectively to support the capabilities of local leaders and regional institutions and work in respectful partnership and accountability with them. I'm humbled and privileged to appear before you today, and I look forward to answering your questions. 
Thank you very much for, for your comments. We'll now go to Senator Haggerty for his opening comments. Uh, of course, Senator Haggerty is a former ambassador to Japan, so he knows how you all feel on that side of the room. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And I must say it was a real privilege to be on that side when you were sitting here. You were very kind to me through that process, and I appreciate it. And I would also say to all of you, um, I hope you'll reach out to us here on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, should you be confirmed and view us as your allies and supporters. Um, and really, I'd like to thank all of you and your families. I know what it takes from a family perspective to do the jobs that you're taking on. So a, a big thanks goes out to them as well. Um, I'd like to start with the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Chile. The United States and Chile share a long history of friendship and cooperation. And I look forward to hearing from the nominee about how we can strengthen the U.S. partnership with Chile while also countering China's malign influence in the country and, frankly, throughout Latin America. I'd like to turn to the nominee to be the coordinator of United States government activities to combat HIV-AIDS globally. This position will spearhead the effort to curb HIV-AIDS, and the United States needs a strong ambassador who will work tirelessly to maintain this commitment in combating the HIV-AIDS pandemic. I look forward to hearing from the nominee on this subject. Next, I'd like to turn to the nomination for USAID's Assistant Administrator for Africa. This position serves an important role in continuing progress made under the Trump administration's Prosper Africa initiative to provide an alternative to China's increased investment in debt diplomacy on the African continent through its One Belt, One Road strategy. At a time when our strategic adversaries are attempting to rewrite international rules and norms, it will be critical for USAID to advance investments and values that re represent the free world. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to focus on the nomination to the Director of the Office of Foreign Missions. This position has the important task of establishing the foundation of diplomacy by facilitating the secure and efficient operations of U.S. missions abroad and of foreign missions and international organizations here in the United States. To all four nominees again, I want to thank you and your families for serving our nation and for answering the questions before the committee today. I look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Haggerty. Uh, we'll now go to Dr. Muyangwa. Uh, Glad to hear from you. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you as President Biden's nominee for Assistant Administrator for Africa at the United States Agency for International Development. I am grateful for President Biden and Administrator's powers trust in me to serve in this position. I would not be sitting before you today without the love, support, and sacrifice of my family in the United States and Zambia. I owe them a huge debt of gratitude. I would especially like to thank my husband, our family anchor, and my biggest supporter, David Kalustian, our daughter, Inonge, who is here with me today, my mother, Wonamukolomuyangwa, and my siblings, extended family, and network of friends and colleagues. I would also like to acknowledge two role models for their unwavering support and belief in me. My late father, Wombale Muyangwa, and my late uncle, Wasmas Kuchimuka. As a girl growing up in Zambia, I experienced USAID's work firsthand. To deter Zambia's support for the region's liberation and independence movement, the apartheid and minority regimes in South Africa and Rhodesia blockaded or destroyed landlocked Zambia's transport infrastructure, disrupting the economy 
and causing severe food shortages. Still, USAID found a way of getting critical food supplies to the population. I vividly remember the day trucks pulled into my boarding school to deliver bags of maize meal emblazoned with the USAID logo. In addition, being from a region hit hard by HIV AIDS, I have lost family members to the disease. Over the years, I have witnessed PEPFAR save millions of lives. USAID's mission resonates deeply with me on a personal level. Professionally, I have spent the last 24 years working to advance US-Africa relations, focusing on the issues that are at the heart of USAID's mission, security, development, and governance. I spent three years at the National Summit on Africa engaging Americans across the country about why Africa matters to the United States and developing policy recommendations for stronger US-Africa relations. I then spent 13 years at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at the Department of Defense, building African capacities and partnerships to prevent and address conflict, violent extremism and fragility, and enhance good governance and the rule of law. For the last eight years at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, I have led the organization's work analyzing and developing policy options for addressing key issues in US-Africa relations in the economic, governance, and security realms. If confirmed, I vow to bring this substantive leadership experience and long-term commitment to working in a bipartisan manner to bear on the US admission on the, on the Africa Bureau's work. Today, USAID's mission is more important than ever. The COVID-19 pandemic has overwhelmed fragile health systems caused tremendous loss of life, erased several years of development gains, and thrown millions of Africans into poverty. Insecurity, violent extremism, and conflict in several countries have killed thousands and displaced millions more, resulting in human, humanitarian crises that are compounded by climate change. Furthermore, the continent is witnessing a rapidly evolving democracy landscape and the increased role of international actors, especially China and Russia. While the narrative about Africa is too often dominated by its challenges, the Africa that I know is also characterized by resilience, transformation, and promise, as partially evidenced by African innovations to mitigate the impacts of the pandemic, expanding tech hubs, and people fighting to safeguard democracy. These and other developments have reinforced my belief that Africa's people, particularly its youth, are the continent's greatest resource. Therefore, if confirmed, I commit to working with you to engage with Africa's challenges and opportunities and balance the agency's life-saving work with investments in development. Specifically, I would focus on four priorities. First, solidify and expand our economic engagement to recover the gains lost to the COVID pandemic and humanitarian crises and foster investments to help put the continent back on an upward development trajectory. Second, address the key factors that hinder development, including climate change, democratic backsliding, and fragility. Third, consolidate, develop, and expand strategic partnerships with Africans and other countries, with the private sector and civil society in order to amplify the pace and impact of desired development outcomes. <clears throat> Fourth, and the overarching goal, lead and manage the Africa Bureau's people, programs, and financial resources in a way that both supports the well-being and security of staff and ensures that the resources entrusted to us by the American people are managed effectively, efficiently, and with accountability. I have long appreciated the bipartisan support for Africa in Congress, and if confirmed, 
I look forward to working with you and others in Congress to continue to strengthen U.S.-Africa relations. Thank you for your consideration. Well, thank you very much uh, for your comments. We'll now go to Ambassador Gonzalez. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the committee. Over four years ago, I was honored to sit before you as a nominee for the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Lesotho. I thank you for putting your trust and confidence in me back then. I'm tremendously proud of the countless women and men across the globe with whom I've had the honor to work with as we've made important strides in combating HIV AIDS, championing democracy and human rights, and promoting trade. I am truly honored to come again before this committee as a nominee, this time as the director of the Office of Foreign Missions. I am grateful for the confidence President Biden and Secretary Blinken have shown in me through this nomination. If confirmed as director of foreign missions, I look forward to working with this committee and the Congress in advancing US national security interests, protecting the American public, and advocating for US United States missions, our dedicated staff members and their families overseas. I would like to take a moment just to recognize and thank my late father, Jose René, and my mother, Estela B. Gonzalez. My father, Colonel Jose René Gonzalez, served in the United States Air Force for 26 years and was buried in 2013 with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. My mother, Estela, who is still a DC public school teacher and is here with me today, has been teaching for over 30 years, and I thank you, Mom, for being here. I would also like to recognize my son, Imagine Alexander, who recently completed his studies at the University of California, who is also here with me. Raised in a military family, I lived abroad, and this gave me a great appreciation for other cultures and a desire to serve my country by joining the Foreign Service. It has been a profound honor and great privilege serving my country for nearly 30 years as a Foreign Service officer. My experience in Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America, and a recognition that there is always much to learn, have prepared me, if confirmed, for the important task of leading the Office of Foreign Missions, an organization whose primary goals are using reciprocity to ensure equitable treatment for US diplomatic and consular missions abroad, regulating the activities of foreign missions in the United States to protect US foreign policy and national security interests, protecting the United States public from abuses of privileges and immunities by members of foreign missions, and providing assistance to ensure the US-based foreign mission community has appropriate privileges, benefits, and services on a reciprocal basis. As you are aware, OFM was established in 1982 pursuant to the Foreign Missions Act. For more than 30 years, this act has guided the department's management and regulation of foreign missions in the United States and the extension of privileges and benefits which are crucial to ensuring the smooth and efficient conduct of US foreign policy. It is through vigilant management and attention to these activities that OFM also protects the public
from the abuses of, from the abuse of privilege and immunities by members of foreign missions. A key element of the Foreign Missions Act is reciprocity. This fundamental tenet allows OFM to positively influence and condition the environment in which US diplomatic and consular missions abroad operate. Reciprocity plays an integral role in advancing our national interests, the efficient conduct of diplomacy, and the safety and well-being of our staff and their family members abroad. In closing, Mr. Chairman, I am honored to have the opportunity to address you and the esteemed members of this committee. If confirmed, my priority will be to further the important objectives Congress set out in the Foreign Missions Act. I look forward to continuing OFM's outstanding work in helping to resolve a myriad of existing challenges and those that inevitably rise in the conduct of US diplomacy. I thank you again for the opportunity to appear for you, before you today and welcome any questions you may have. Well, well thank you for your comments. Uh, all four of you, uh, thank you for your service, but as you have taken life experiences and have turned that into a way to use a position in public service to strengthen our nation. So I thank all four of you for your commitment uh, to strengthening America through service in, uh, in diplomacy. I have some obligatory questions that I will ask on behalf of the committee. I would ask that each one of you respond either yes or no to the questions, and I'll yield to my colleagues for the first round of questioning. So the first question, and this has to do with cooperation with our committee, et cetera. Uh, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Just go down the room. Yes. Yes. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation with policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 You've all passed this part of the hearing, so congratulations to all of you. <laughs> With that, let me uh, yield uh, to Senator Kane. Mr. Chair, Senator Haggerty, thank you so much, and what a, what a great panel of witnesses. Um, Ms. Meehan, I want to talk to you about your service to the country. Um, because your, your opening comments were humble. Uh, and, I, and I don't want to delve into things that are uncomfortable, but I also want this committee to know of your bravery. Uh, you served in Columbia at a very difficult time, 2004 to 2006, and you passed over it briefly in your comments during the time you were serving our nation there. You were kidnapped, you were assaulted, there was a subsequent trial of at least some of the perpetrators. Um, we always have nominees for ambassador who come before us and say they will take as a serious priority, keeping their people safe, and they always mean it, I know that that means a, a particular amount to you. And I also know that you must uh, really rejoice, as many of us do, in the progress that has happened in Colombia since the years that you were there, to see Colombia announced as a major non-NATO ally by President Biden last week. Those kinds of signs of progress make you feel, must make you feel pretty proud. You then came back to the United States later that year, 2006, and during the Bush administration, it was during the Iraq War, a particularly dangerous 
phase of that war, and the State Department was looking for volunteers to go to Iraq, into the war zone there. Now, having had a traumatic experience in Colombia, I doubt any of your colleagues would have looked askance at Bernadette Meehan not volunteering to go to Iraq. Uh, but you volunteered to go to Iraq within months after the difficult experience in Colombia. And when I found this out, I was kind of stunned by that. So I asked you, when we talked by phone, why did you volunteer to go to Iraq within months after this challenging, challenging situation in Colombia? Uh, Senator, thank you for your comments and uh, for the question. When I joined the Foreign Service, the area that I loved most in the world was the Western Hemisphere, so I knew that I wanted to serve there on my first tour. When it came time to bid on my second tour, the foreign policy priority of President Bush was the war in Iraq. And I felt that as a Foreign Service officer, a career civil, career civil servant, I had a duty to answer the call. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice was looking for volunteers uh, to serve alongside the men and women of the armed forces. Uh, and so for me, this was part of the mission that I had signed up to as a career Foreign Service officer. I also joined the Foreign Service with the hope that someday I would be a leader in the Department of State. And I faced the question, if at some point in the future, 10, 20 years, I was in a leadership position and was asked to send junior Foreign Service officers off to a war zone or other difficult post, I would have to be able to answer the question, where was I during my formative years as a Foreign Service officer when the war of Iraq and the war in Afghanistan was taking place? And so in addition to a duty to serve the president and his foreign policy priorities, I also felt a responsibility to the institution of the State Department, uh, which made it an easy decision. It was by far the most difficult year of my life. That was a particularly vicious time uh, in that war, but there is not a day that goes by that I regret the decision to serve. And Ms. Mean, it wasn't just a difficult time in the war. It was a difficult time for you personally. Tell, tell the committee, again, I don't want to probe unnecessarily, but please tell the committee about your experience during the year you were in Iraq. Sure. Uh, so it was a beautiful spring day, and I was outside on my cell phone, uh, talking with someone on the other side of the green zone, and I could hear the CRAM go off, the alert system, in a far part of the green zone. Um, but there was a rocket barrage, and one of the rockets uh, landed close to where I was, and I suffered a concussion, hearing damage that lingers to this day as a result of that injury, which, to be clear, in the, um, in the scale of the conflict and the ultimate sacrifices that people made fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, it is minimal and inconsequential. Uh, but this is part of the risk that we assume when we sign up to, uh, to work in the Foreign Service. It's something that we acknowledge is, is a part of the commitment to serving the interests of the United States and part of our commitment to be worldwide available wherever the Secretary and the President need us to serve. I, I would like to think that if I were in a similar circumstance and it had a very difficult uh, experience, for example, in Colombia, and then I came back and then there was an opportunity to volunteer to go into a war zone, I would like to think I would like to think that I would have accepted that responsibility and volunteered, but I, I really can't honestly say that I'm sure I would have. And uh, that was a very patriotic and ennobling decision. You continue to then serve patriotically for many more years in the Foreign Service, for which we thank you. But again, I didn't want to get into things that were uncomfortable, but I think this is really important for the committee to know. So thank you for sharing that. I yield back. 
I think Senator Kane speaks for every member of this committee. Uh, thank you for your response to that. Senator Haggerty. Well, I will speak for Senator Kane as well to say I feel certain that you would have volunteered if that situation arose. Um, Ms. Meehan, I'd like to just stay with you for, for the moment, if I might. Um, first, to, to, to thank you for a first tour FSO to have the experience you did in Columbia. Um, I very much appreciate and respect how that has, I'm sure, informed your decision-making process as you've continued to serve our nation, and I'm sure it will continue to do so going forward if you're confirmed. Uh, I also want to um, acknowledge the fact, I understand you have a three-year-old? Yes, well, Senator Milley. If, if you are confirmed, I, I, I feel certain Millie will have a, a most wonderful life-changing experience as she grows into, into age, an age now that she'll remember the experience being with you and serving in a very important role. Um, so I commend you and your family for that. I'd like, though, to turn to the influence of China in Chile. Uh, in 2018, Chile agreed to join China's Belt and Road Initiative. 2019, Chile expanded its bilateral free trade agreement with China. 2021, Chile joined the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that China uses to mount its influence. And just a few days ago, uh, Gabriel Boric was inaugurated as Chile's new president, and a new president, a young president, a president that I think would probably benefit greatly from the advice of the United States ambassador. So I, I'd, I'd like to get a sense for your, your understanding of the strategic implications of China's role and how that will inform your advice to, to that president as well as our policy there. Sure, thank you very much for the question, Senator. Uh, in addition to all of the statistics and context that you provided, um, it's important to note that China is also Chile's number one trading partner, having overtaken the United States in 2009. Um, and on the soft power side, China has announced plans to open Sinovac manufacturing and distribution centers in Chile, and also runs a network of 21 Confucius Institutes uh, in the country. And in comparison, the US runs 14 American spaces uh, in Chile. I think about approaching um, this issue with vigilance um, in a number of ways. The first is, as you note, there's a new administration. I think it's important to emphasize the importance of Chile maintaining a business climate that is based on respect for free trade, transparency, and democratic good governance. I think we need to use our position to emphasize the advantages of engaging and doing business with US companies. And I think part of that is contrasting it with the impact that you get between PRC firms and, and US firms in areas that are shared values for the US and Chile. Environmental impact, labor rights impact, debt, sovereignty, telecom and data privacy and security. I would also uh, underscore that investments that may seem um, convenient and inexpensive at the outset can be extremely costly yes. if they compromise national security. And this would be uh, engaging with uh, untrusted vendors, as an example. Well, I, I think China's role in their telecommunications infrastructure is a concern that you and I both share. I would just encourage you that if you are confirmed that you would uh, undertake a very direct and engaged position with the business community, with the Chamber of Commerce, the American Chamber of Commerce there, uh, do everything you can to convene American enterprises. We are their largest foreign direct investor. That's correct. Regardless of the fact that we've lost our, we, we've allowed China to take pole position in terms of trade, there's opportunity there. And I, I think an ambassador with the right mindset can make a real difference. And the deeper our economic ties, the stronger our security ties will be. Okay. So I would encourage you to do that and would be happy to work with you in that regard if, if I could be helpful in any way. Um, next, I'd like to turn to Dr. Kingasong. 
uh, and I understand that you worked on public health issues for many years, particularly in Africa. And as a result of China's irresponsible and dangerous, mis dangerous mismanagement of COVID-19, the entire world is still suffering from the consequences of this global pandemic. As the director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, I imagine you've had a view on China's role with respect to COVID-19. And I'd like to get your sense of what China's role was with respect to the outbreak of COVID-19. Thank you, Senator. I have served as the director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is a specialized technical agency of the African Union for five years. And I was there as a, as a second man from the US government to the African Union, which they deeply appreciate that. Uh, I think, let me start first of all with um, the, the recognition that um, the leadership role that the US has played in supporting Africa in this COVID fight has been extraordinary, especially with uh, the support, the direct support provided to the Africa CDC. The data that has been analyzed throughout the continent has been data analyzed with the support of the partnership with the US government. Last case studies have been conducted thanks to the efforts and direct technical assistance from, from the US government. The US government is the largest provider of vaccines across Africa as we speak now. And thanks to that leadership, the continent, and I can speak, I reflect on the, 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 the mood within the, the African Union is thanks to the, the support from the United States. Now, uh, we have to continue to work with WHO, the World Health Organization, and all our allies to make sure that we, we understand uh, the, the origins of, of, of COVID-19, the virus that causes this pandemic. And we can only do that through cooperation and support with, uh, for a strengthened WHO so that it can enable us to get into the, the depth of this. If we do not know that, it will be very difficult for us to prepare for the next pandemic and even so to get rid of this current pandemic. Well, I'm um, surprised that you'd look to the WHO given their role uh, and their influence, the malign influence that China's had at the WHO, but with reform, perhaps that is the correct answer. Uh, but thank you very much for your service. Chairman, I'm beyond my time here. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman um, and uh, Ranking Member. Thank you to all of the nominees for your uh, continued public service. Uh, uh, first question uh, for Dr. Muyangwa. Um, how do you think about uh, climate adaptation, um, climate impacts? I'm not asking you about policy questions as it relates to energy uh, generation, fuel, anything like that, but to the extent that USAID has a role in dealing with extreme weather events, drought, uh, and all the suffering that goes along with that, um, is, is USAID downstream from all that and just sort of servicing those problems, or do, does it have a role in sort of um, thinking through some strategies um, a little bit upstream and a little bit more uh, um, looking where the ball is going to be uh, 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 as opposed to just responding to circumstances. Um, thank you, Senator. I mean, that, that's a, a key question. Uh, I understand that the agency is playing a key role uh, in this area. Climate change is one of the priorities uh, for the uh, administration and therefore for the agency uh, as well. 
to that regard, it is my understanding that the agency just recently released a draft climate change strategy uh, that is looking at those different strategies and, and approaches of how we engage not uh, internationally on this issue of, of climate change. So I don't have visibility on the strategy, but I do know that the agency is working on figuring out how that strategy is then embedded into the various programming and approaches uh, that it has on the, uh, on the continent. Thank you. Um, uh, Ms. Meehan, uh, thank you for being willing to serve again. Can you just talk to me about rare earth mineral, minerals um, and the relationship that the United States has as it relates to um, uh, the materials that we need specifically uh, for some of our high-tech um, manufacturing and, uh, and, um, and also the balance that we may have to strike in terms of we clearly need these uh, rare earth elements, um, but they are not uh, inconsequential environmentally in terms of the extraction. Yeah, thank you very much for the question, Senator. Um, the extractive industry is one that is extremely important to Chile's economy. They're the number one uh, producer of, of copper in the world and the number two producer of lithium. Uh, as you point out, lithium is, uh, is sort of the conundrum in that it is necessary to develop uh, batteries and some of the other things we need for clean energy, but it is an extractive. So I think one of the ways that the United States can, can continue to partner with Chile in this area is on promoting sustainable development of critical minerals. Uh, we have deep uh, U.S. mining interests and business interests, but I think our commitment to environmental safeguards, in particular, referring back to Senator Haggerty's question, uh, is a competitive advantage for us um, when competing with PRC firms that are looking to invest in this area. Okay, that's a smart answer. Um, let me just ask you another broader question. Where are the additional opportunities for climate partnership? Sure. Uh, Chile has been a leader and is to be commended, uh, I think, on clean energy, environment, and climate action. Um, they and use fisheries. Their, and fisheries, yes. Marine protection, ocean protection, uh, fisheries down around Antarctica as well. Um, so we have a strong foundation for collaboration already, and I think there's always opportunities to do more. Uh, they have an ambitious uh, hydrogen program to use hydrogen as a way to redu uh, reduce emissions from, uh, from industry. Uh, they are a leader in clean energy, solar, uh, wind, which all obviously have positive impacts for the environment and are ripe for continued collaboration with the United States. Final question. Reporters Without Borders assesses that there is, quote, little pluralism in Chile uh, and that journalists are, are vulnerable. Do you share that assessment? And if so, what should we do about it? Sure. Uh, thank you for the question. Chile has a commendable um, tradition of an open and free press. Uh, President Boric, who just took office on Friday, uh, has made respect for human rights, uh, democracy, and transparency um, fundamental to his platform. Uh, and so I would expect that this would be an area where I would continue to make the U.S. position on these issues known and would find uh, an open audience in the new administration. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Senator Young had joined us by WebEx. Is Senator Young? I understand that he is not available right now. Senator Van Hollen, are you ready? Yeah. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you all for your uh, testimony and service. Congratulations on your nominations. Uh, Dr. Muyangwa, um, it's good to see a fellow Marylander here. And I chair the subcommittee on Africa and global health uh, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I'm especially uh, interested in um, your vision of 
what uh, role AID can play in, in Prosper Africa and other uh, initiatives. Could you just take a moment and talk about how you envision USAID's new trade and investment program and how that fits into uh, Prosper Africa and any sort of changes in direction or vision from the previous administration, um, if you were confirmed? Thank you, Senator. I think one of the things that I have witnessed over the years of working in this space is how the United States government has expanded our economic engagement infrastructure with the continent from one administration to the next. So starting with AGOA, uh, going on to President Obama's doing business in Africa and the Trump administration's uh, Prosper Africa initiative, uh, I believe that that expansion gives us um, a lot of opportunities uh, to strengthen our economic engagement with the, the, the continent, to provide a rules-based uh, alternative to... Uh, oops. Your mic wasn't on. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> All right. To, to provide a, a, a rules-based uh, economic model uh, that would uh, counter what the... Uh, PRC has to offer to, to the continent. So I think there are plenty of opportunities there for uh, the agency to, to deepen that economic engagement. And so that's uh, a, key, uh, a key piece of that. Um, I also see the work that uh, Power Africa is doing on, on, on the African continent because I see Prosper Africa and Power Africa Yes. working together to push and expand and deepen that uh, economic engagement. So the, the fact that Power Africa has now brought first-time ele uh, electricity users to 127 million since its inception, I think that has implications for development, that has implications for um, our engagement uh, with the African continent. And so those are things that I would look to expand and build, build on. Uh, if confirmed, the fact that uh, Prosper Africa has now done, I think, I believe it's 800 deals uh, worth 50 billion in about 45 African countries. And so if we continue to grow on that, we, we really have the opportunity to strengthen U.S.-Africa economic engagement and counter uh, the People's Republic of uh, China at the same time. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, we had a hearing, uh, our first hearing in the subcommittee uh, on Africa uh, really focused on these issues of economic opportunity for Africa with its young population, uh, but also opportunities, of course, for American you know, businesses working with um, African uh, businesses. Uh, and one of the suggestions that came out of that hearing, uh, and I'm just interested in your opinion, I don't have a particular view on this, but is that we really need to focus more on a sectoral strategy in order to be effective. In other words, uh, instead of simply saying we want to engage across the board on all commercial relations, should we be more strategic about it in terms of focusing on certain sectors uh, with respect to our trade and investment strategy? Sure. No, thank you very much for that question. I believe the agency is looking at some of those sectors uh, already. I understand, for instance, that uh, the agency, together with the DFC, have... Um, a project that they are working on to enhance American investors' participation in West Africa's rapidly growing housing sector. And so I think the, the different things that they are looking at in that regard, and I think that's work that should obviously uh, continue. I don't have enough information uh, on it to know whether there are specific sectors beyond housing and uh, the 
you know, the power sector, but that's definitely something that I would want to look into and see if that's a, a much more impactful strategy that we could pursue. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I, my time is very brief, but I did have a quick question for uh, Dr. Ninkeng Sung. Nice, thank, congratulations on your nomination. So, uh, PEPFAR, my, my, quick, my question is, obviously we have an ongoing challenge of fighting COVID-19. How does that impact, if at all, your efforts with PEPFAR? The things we've learned from that or the things that make it especially complicated now with respect to PEPFAR, given what's happening with COVID? Thank you, Senator. Um, and I'm afraid for the good of my colleagues, if, I, if you keep it like 30 seconds, because I know others have questions. And, uh, absolutely. I, I think PEPFAR, Senator, um, has created a tremendous uh, public health uh, infrastructure that has been used effectively, thanks to your leadership, to fight in HIV AIDS in the world, but also provides unique opportunity to fight other diseases, including uh, COVID-19. We've seen how, during this pandemic, how COVID has impacted our uh, ability, some of our efforts to fight HIV AIDS. But we've also seen how uh, we've used HIV uh, platforms to scale up vaccination in countries like Zambia and other settings there. So I believe it is really, um, an opportune moment to harness that investment that we've put in place for the last 20 years to make it a more robust and efficient system in fighting um, HIV pandemic as well as uh, other uh, emerging diseases. Uh, we all know in the field that uh, there will be and probably other pandemics, but we are, if we use the PEPFAR platforms efficiently, we can actually make an impact and get ourselves ready. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Now recognize the, the chairman of our committee, Senator Menendez. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, congratulations to all of you on your nominations. They're all very important positions. Um, let me turn to Ms. Meehan. Uh, President Bork uh, has spoken out clearly on challenges to human rights and democracy in Latin America and the Caribbean, frankly stating that the repressive authoritarian regimes in Venezuela and Nicaragua have failed, his words and there are permanent restrictions on freedoms in Cuba. These are important and welcome statements by President Boric and provide an opportunity for U.S. diplomacy uh, on democracy and human rights in our hemisphere. If you're confirmed, how will you engage with President Boric on democracy and human rights in Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, or other countries in the hemisphere? Mr. Chairman, thank you for the question and for the opportunity to appear before the committee today. Uh, this is an area where we have a shared interest with President Boric. As you noted, he has been strong in his defense of human rights in the region and around the world, including the Russian invasion, condemning the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I think we have a unique opportunity with him. He has made defense of human rights such a central piece of how he intends to govern Chile and be active in the region that I think it gives us an opportunity to approach him um, to be a new kind of leader on the left in the region. I am particularly heartened by the fact that he has pushed back against members of his own coalition who have disagreed with his statements condemning autocratic regimes in the region. And he has made a point of saying, I think in response to their criticisms, that he will continue to condemn human rights no matter the creed of those inflicting them upon their people. So this is an area where I would plan to be actively engaged. Uh, centering this concern and our engagement around a shared value that the United States and Chile have Good. and using it as an opportunity for him to make a, a firm statement. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Now, 
in that regard, you were on a podcast in 2018 in which you spoke about your role in shaping U.S. policy towards Cuba during the Obama administration, and you offered your personal views. Talking about Cuba, you said, quote, in the broad sense, there's the sexiness of the history. There are assassination attempts, this swarthy guerrilla commander who overthrows Batista and takes over. Then there's the sultry mystery, the forbidden fruit, if you will. You get to know this place on a more intimate level, and it's a charming, wonderful, enchanting place. Close quote. In referring to your talk to the Cuban regime, you also said, quote, if it takes sitting down at a table and really trying to understand the other perspective, even if you completely disagree with it, and being respectful and eating some pig and drinking some rum, and that allows you to say there should be space for internet and cuenta propistas, or at least a space to discuss it, then I would say that's progress, close quote. So as you know, the Cuban regime has decades-long record of repressing, jailing, torturing, and killing its political opponents. What aspect of the Cuban regime's human rights record fits into the, quote, sexiness of history that you mentioned? Senator, thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you for the question. In my work as a career foreign service officer, my role was to carry out the policy of the president. I will never have the knowledge of Cuba that you have. I will never have the personal connection that you and thousands of other Cuban Americans have. I acknowledge that. I care deeply about the plight of the Cuban people. And if anything I said in that interview led you to believe otherwise, I regret that. And I would like to state clearly for the record today where I stand on this issue. I believe that the Cuban people are entitled to choose their own government, that they are entitled to the universal human, human rights that everyone in the world is entitled to. I believe that the regime needs to be held accountable for systemic ongoing abuses against the Cuban people. Cuba is a national security threat to the United States and a malign influence in the region. And if confirmed as ambassador to Chile, I will do everything in my power to advance US policy to help the people of Cuba by partnering with the government of Chile. And I would welcome, if confirmed, the opportunity to consult with you on how we might encourage President Boric to take a more active role. So then, since the historic protests of July of last year, where the Diaz-Canal regime jailed and sentenced hundreds of Cubans, including minors, to lengthy prison terms just for protesting peacefully, uh, I assume that that wasn't part of your assessment of what makes Cuba a, quote, charming, wonderful, enchanting place. Mr. Chairman, in my limited role working on Cuba, the most meaningful aspect was getting to engage with some of the Cuban people directly, organizing President Obama's roundtable, where I had the immense honor to meet courageous people like Jose Daniel Ferrer, Berta Soler, Ioani Sanchez, others who have fought and given way more than I can ever understand in defense of their own rights. That is what was most meaningful to me about my engagement. And again, if any statements I have made took away from the focus that should be on the suffering of the Cuban people and the atrocities of the regime, then I regret that. And I commit to you that if I am confirmed for this position, I will do everything I can to fight to advance US policy for the people of Cuba. I raised these questions this morning. The full committee had a hearing on authoritarianism uh, throughout the world and democratic backsliding, and what do we do about that? Well, here is uh, the epitome of authoritarianism, dictatorship, and the consequences to people. And so I understand when one is a, a foreign service officer that they speak, but in some of these comments, it wasn't as a foreign service officer. 
It goes to who you are in terms of what you're thinking about. And that's why I raised the question, because if you're going to be in a country in Latin America where, in fact, the president has shown some willingness to engage in that direction, in being an advocate for human rights and democracy in the hemisphere, then we need an ambassador who's going to echo that. If I may, Mr. Chairman, I have one final question. Um, in December of 2013, I introduced the Nuclear Weapon-Free Iran Act, a bill that was co-sponsored by 59 members of the Senate, including Senators Schumer, Cardin, Coons, Booker, Warner, Casey, Gillibrand, Manchin, Bennett, just to mention a few. As the NSC spokesperson, you responded to our initiative by saying, quote, if certain members of Congress want the United States to take military action, they should be upfront with the American public and say so. Otherwise, it's not clear why any member of Congress would support a bill that possibly closes the door on diplomacy and makes it more likely that the United States will have to choose between military options or allowing Iran's nuclear program to proceed. Uh, so I want to understand, I want to get clarification here. Um, do you personally believe that I, Majority Leader Schumer, Senator Cardins or Cook, uh, Coombs, Booker, and our colleagues, by introducing the bill, were pushing the United States to take military action against Iran? Mr. Chairman, thank you for the question. I was a career Foreign Service officer, and in my capacity as NSC spokesperson, part of my responsibility was to issue comments and statements that reflect the President's policies. Those comments and statements are often the product of interagency drafting and clearances way above my level. My personal opinion, since you asked for it, to be clear, is first and foremost that Iran can never be allowed to obtain a nuclear weapon. With regards to your second question, no, I do not believe that. I served in Iraq, Senator, and I am very cognizant and admired the tough vote that you took to oppose the war in Iraq when it was a very unpopular decision. So I do not believe that you are someone who would advocate for unnecessary military action. So you, you made that statement as, a, as the essence of an interagency process where basically you were told, this is the position we have, and so therefore you were espousing that position. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, Senator, that would be well, that's, that's, an, that's a very insightful thing. Uh, and so I would also believe you don't personally believe that we were trying to close the door on diplomacy. Senator, I would hope that, n that no member of the U.S. Congress would close the door on diplomacy. Well, I really appreciate your answers. There are insights that will go into my book for sure. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I thank you all. I have questions for, uh, I know, but our other colleagues here. I have questions. Uh, I'll wait uh, for Dr. Miyonwa uh, uh, as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Booker was with us by WebEx. Is Senator Booker there? If not, we'll go to Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And uh, Ms. Meehan, uh, as a Boston College alumnus, um, congratulations to you and your incredible uh, career uh, in the Foreign Service and in the National Security Council. We're very proud of you. We're very proud of Ambassador Burns now in China. Yes. Doing a great job. Ambassador Hartley in Great Britain. So you're making the Eagles very proud. Your great work. Uh, and, um, and in Chile, it's getting more complicated. Uh, and uh, obviously, we need someone with great experience in order to be able to navigate that um, uh, pathway. Um, so with, with, um, with um, Boric now inaugurated, um, and this relationship that the Chileans have with the Chinese, mm -hmm. especially with regard to 
Um, they are precious metals, uh, and not only the United States, but other countries need for them to make a clean energy revolution. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Copper, lithium, China, and the strings that they attach, and, and what the United States should be doing uh, in order to rectify that. Sure. Step. Thank you very much for the question, Senator, uh, and go Eagles, for the <laughs> record. Um, clean energy is an area where Chile has been a leader in the region, and they are to be commended for that. Uh, they have made uh, impressive commitments on becoming carbon neutral, phasing out coal power plants, uh, focusing on solar and renewable clean energy. Um, but extractives are also extremely important to the Chilean economy. Uh, and there are also significant U.S. business interests uh, in the mining sector in Chile, the number one producer of copper, the number two producer of lith lithium in the world. Um, but I think that this is an area where the U.S. can work with Chile to promote sustainable development of critical minerals, which allows uh, the Chilean economy to continue to grow, which protects U.S. business interests in the mining sector, but also allows us to use our competitive advantage over the PRC, which is our commitment to environmental safeguards and labor rights. So I think um, it's an issue where there are multiple uh, threads of interest and priorities for the U.S. government that we have um, a very collaborative partnership to build on with the Chilean government. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, when, when President Kennedy gave his speech at Rice University, when the Soviets threatened to take control of space, um, that we needed a mission to invent new metals and technologies and to bring that mission yeah. back from um, uh, the moon and heat twice the intensity of the sun and get it all done in eight years. And we did it. So the Russians are challenging us again with the uh, Russian oil and gas that uh, too much of the West has become dependent upon, and we need a similar response. But we're going to need to find a way of you know, using um, our relationship with countries like this as China seeks to exploit those relationships. Would you like to comment upon China's plan right now in country after country, including Chile, to uh, take disproportionate control over those natural resources. Sure, uh, Senator. Chile, uh, China, uh, the PRC is Chile's number one trading partner. Uh, Chile is a member of the Belt and Road Initiative. We see Chinese uh, increasing PRC investment in critical sectors like lithium production, telecom, ports, data security, uh, renewable energy, energy um, distribution, and space. Uh, within Chile. So it is an area where we need to remain vigilant. I think highlighting the advantages of doing business with the United States, uh, our commitment to environmental safeguards, labor rights, uh, the protection that is needed when dealing with data privacy uh, and sovereignty issues shows a clear advantage for the United States over, over the PRC. I also think it would be worthwhile, um, and if confirmed, I would like to share the experience of the United States that we've had with CFIUS. This is a mechanism that has allowed us to identify critical sectors, identify threats to those sectors, and consider national security when making investment decisions. And I think that could be an experience uh, that would be worth sharing with the Chilean government. Yeah, I thank you. And, and again, your wisdom, your experience, they're going to be critical. This is a turning point in world history that we're living through right now. And we have to learn the, the lessons and implement a plan. And uh, Dr. Uh, Nakangasan, um, how will you work with countries where same-sex relations are criminalized to ensure that LGBTQI persons are not shut out of receiving life-saving health care through PEPFAR. Thank you, Senator, for that um, <clears throat> very important question. Our goal in PEPFAR, if confirmed, uh, Senator, uh, should continue to be focusing on ending the, the uh, pandemic or epidemic by the year 2013. 
That means uh, using uh, science and data-driven approaches to follow the, where the virus is. I would say that, I mean, our mantra should be follow the virus, regardless of where uh, it is, because a threat, uh, the virus presence in any community or sub-community or individuals is a threat for our, all our efforts there. So I think if confirmed, I would continue to advocate for the use of effective data-driven uh, approaches uh, regardless of people's uh, beliefs and, and practices to fight the pandemic and work with countries that uh, have policies in place that are adverse to this and shed lights on where the issues are, where they should focus on fighting the virus, knowing that it is a threat for, for all of us and it can undermine the 20 years of investment that we've all put in place there. So I think, uh, Senator, if confirmed, that is what I will do with effective partnership with countries as much as possible to advocate for the rights of, of people. And I thank you. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to say that, without taking up any additional time, that conversion therapy is now increasingly a practice uh, in countries around the world. And I just want to make sure that you're going to work to ensure that no PEPFAR implementer discriminates against LGBTQI uh uh, persons through such conversion theory. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That's what I'm referring to, Senator, that um, we should focus what the, the enemy is, the virus, uh, not, not people. I think that, is, that should be very, very evident. And I will, if confirmed, uh, carry that as a mantra. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the service of all of you here. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Marker. We'll have a second round of questions now. I'll begin with Senator Menendez and then Senator Haggerty. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, in the last 18 months, coups have occurred in Mali, Chad, Sudan, Guinea, and Burkina Faso, and attempted coups in Niger, uh, prompting alarm among policymakers about democratic backsliding in Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Miyangwa, what is your, in your view, what accounts for the backsliding, and how would you assess the effectiveness of USAID's democracy and governance programs in Africa? Thank you, Senator. Um, like you, I and many other people who work in this space are very concerned about the trend for democratic backsliding that we have seen across the globe, uh, including Africa. Um, at the same time, even as the democratic backsliding is, is occurring on the continent, what you're also seeing is a very high demand from ordinary Africans for democracy. The, protests that have brought millions of Africans across the continent into the streets, demanding democracy, demanding accountability for their governments. That shows all of us that that demand uh, for democracy is alive and well and uh, in all corners uh, of, the, of the continent. So I, I believe that the agency, USAID, is doing some good work uh, in terms of trying to uh, support and make sure that we can uh, arrest this democratic backsliding. The investment that the agency is, is putting in terms of strengthening democratic institutions, uh, strengthening, opening up the space for political participation, uh, trying to um, work with some countries on electoral reforms, trying to ensure that we have a media that can play uh, its role addressing electoral violence. So they have, the agency has these programs in, in many countries that are experiencing this democratic backsliding. 
Well, having me, said that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm glad to hear you say having said that because my time <laughs> is limited. Sure. So maybe this is where you're going to go next when you're saying having said that. Uh, part of it is I want to understand from your view as someone who is uh, nominated for this position, mm -hmm. what's the, and it, it doesn't have to be nice if it's not nice, okay, the effectiveness of USAID's democracy and governance efforts in African countries. What adjustments would you make if you were confirmed? If I were confirmed, I think one of the things we would uh, want to look at is really looking at the new ways that authoritarians and others are using to undermine democracy, make sure we understand what those ways are, and then looking at our toolbox to say, do we have the right tools in that toolbox to really go to the heart of these new ways of undermining uh, democracy? And looking at our toolbox to say, how can we amplify and consolidate some of the good work that the agency is already doing? Mm. So I think it's that part of understanding the ways in which democracy is being undermined and looking at your toolbox. Can I get a commitment from you that you would engage uh, with my staff on proposed changes to our democracy and governance programs in Africa to address this challenge? Absolutely. I can commit to continuing to consult with the committee and your staff on this issue. Okay. And finally, uh, Senator Kane and I met with a series of members of the Ethiopian uh, community last night, particularly to Grants. Uh, what do we do in a place like Tigray where, in fact, uh, w from my perspective, we have a genocide going on? Uh, we are seeing the slaughter. We, we saw a video of live people being burned. I know we are focused on Ukraine, as we should be, but we cannot let the rest of the world think that they can get away with what they are doing because we are somehow diverted. What do we do in a, what, what do we do in a country like that? How do we work to first get humanitarian assistance and then, of course, to develop a dialogue that brings us to a political solution? Sure. No, thank you, um, Senator. The, the situation in uh, northern uh, Ethiopia is uh, a difficult one, and the images that you were talking about, I think we also saw those horrifying uh, images this uh, past weekend. It's a tough question. I believe that the U.S. government, including members of uh, this committee, are uh, hitting all of the pressure points uh, that I can see from where I sit, urging uh, the political leadership to find a political situation uh, to the situation, pressing on uh, justice and accountability, and ensuring that uh, the Ethiopian and Tigrayan government, uh, sorry, the, the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments uh, focus on justice and accountability to ensure that those who are committing uh, these gross violations are, are held to account. Ensuring that national and international investigations can, can uh, occur unfettered. Uh, the U.S. government, including the agency, continue to press for unfettered humanitarian access. I think continuing on all of those fronts uh, needs to uh, move forward. And if I were confirmed, you know, that is, I would continue on those uh, efforts on the humanitarian assistance in particular. Well, we look forward to your confirmation as well as that effort. <laughs> and we need our government to double uh, its efforts in this regard. Uh, I, you know... I think if this was happening in some other part of the world, it'd be a human outcry. It's happening in Africa. 
And so therefore, it doesn't quite seem to have the same outcry. My conscience will not uh, be blotted by not raising it and continuing to drive our own country to deal with it. Thank you very much. Senator Haggerty and then Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Miyango, I'd like to turn to you, if I might, um, and talk about the Prosper Africa Initiative. I was very pleased to learn that in July of last year, uh, this program that was launched back in 2019 is going to be extended. When the program was first enacted, it was promoting trade, commercial ties, and investment across Africa. Uh, it's all done with an aim to provide a more viable alternative to the malign influence that China and Russia both uh, purvey there in Africa. And I'd, I'd like to ask you, uh, how would USAID best leverage the private sector, the American private sector, which is a huge source of competitive advantage for us here, how would USAID leverage our private sector to better counter the malign influence of China and Russia in the region? Sure. No, thank you very much, Senator, for that question. I believe that Prosper Africa has already laid a solid foundation uh, in terms of what it has accomplished uh, to date. The 800 deals uh, that it has uh, uh, already done with 50 billion, uh, worth 50 billion. And I think building on that is going to be critical. I think there are a number of ways that that can be leveraged. Uh, from my perspective, I think some of those ways include uh, creating an environment in which American companies feel that their investments would be secure. So part of that is a regulatory uh, framework. Uh, I think in uh, reducing the barriers to trade, uh, that trade and investment that exists, and, and really just working to deepening some of the financial and capital markets. So I think there's a lot of space still uh, in, that, uh, in that area. But also just making American uh, companies comfortable with the sense that you know, invest, they can invest in Africa safely and that they will yield a return on that investment. I think all of those are key uh, elements that the agency can continue to push on. But I think... I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I am a very strong proponent of deeper economic ties because they lead then certainly to stronger security ties. Absolutely. So uh, I applaud your perspective on that and hope that you'll continue to focus particularly on how to engage the private sector as, a, as an important partner in, in that initiative. Ambassador Gonzalez, I might turn to you now to talk about how Afghanistan is going to be represented in the United Nations. Um, in December, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution to delay a decision on who will represent the government of Afghanistan in New York. The Taliban, of course, seeks to replace the envoy from the Afghan government. The Afghan government's current envoy was appointed by the democratically elected people of democratically elected government of Afghanistan. Um, we don't know how long this decision will be deferred at the United Nations, but in, in your perspective role uh, at, at OFM, what factors would influence the extent of the services, if any services, uh, that you would provide to a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan mission to the United Nations in New York. Thank you very much for that question, Senator. And I share your concerns about Afghanistan and uh, the Taliban. Um, I thank Congress, uh, as I did earlier, Senator, uh, for passing the Office of Foreign Missions Act and providing us with those, um, with those tools that we can use um, to regulate the activities of <clears throat> foreign missions here in the United States. 
Um, if I were confirmed, uh, you have my commitment that I will work to protect U.S. national security, foreign policy interests, and I look forward to working with you, Senator, and the Congress and our other national security stakeholders to look into these issues and, and, how, and determine how to address these issues um, in the best manner. Thank you, sir. Would you, would you consider, for example, restricting the travel of diplomats from a Taliban-elected government the way we do uh, diplomats from Iran or North Korea? Thank you, Senator Haggerty. We do have travel restrictions, as you noted, and I, if confirmed, I certainly would in consultation with our other, with yourself and our other national security stakeholders. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Mr. Senator Coons. Thank you, uh, Acting Chairman Kane and uh, Acting Ranking Member Haggerty. Um, thank you to the four nominees who are before me. It's uh, great to have an opportunity to question you. I look forward to supporting your uh, nominations and to working with you. If I could, Ambassador Gonzalez, just uh, briefly, um, if confirmed, how would you improve the Office of Foreign Missions work with local law enforcement uh, to ensure the proper delivery of consular notifications uh, to foreign nationals in the United States? Uh, thank you for that question, Senator Kuhn. Um, I would, Kuhns, I would um, work. I know that um, our various offices, of, uh, our various offices throughout the United States, work very closely um, with local authorities, uh, municipal governments, and state governments, as well as uh, foreign missions um, located throughout the United States. Uh, if I were confirmed, I will certainly travel to these areas and continue OFM's outstanding work in establishing, uh, in, in communicating and their relations um, with the various embassies and diplomatic missions throughout um, throughout the United States. And of course, Senator, I, I welcome your advice and your partnership. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Dr. Muyangwa, uh, I would be interested in uh, your thoughts both on um, the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, and how we might strengthen its ability to partner with our vital allies um, to crowd in uh, private finance and to contribute to uh, the transparent and sustainable development of Africa and, and thus sort of build out a little bit prosper Africa. Um, and given all your deep experience across the continent, what do you think the administration's signature initiative uh, might be as we prepare for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit later this year? Thank you, Senator. I think there are a lot of opportunities for um, USA to collaborate with uh, the DFC, and that's already uh, underway in many ways. I understand that USAID is working with the U.S. Development Finance Corporation to implement Prosper Africa and Power Africa. So that's a good um, mechanism for harnessing these 17 agencies that work together to make sure that everybody is pushing uh, in the right direction. Um, the work that the agency has working with the DFC to invest in vaccine manufacturing um, facilities across Africa to ensure that uh, Africa can uh, respond to the next pandemic, um, I think is key. Uh, the, these two manufacturing facilities that they have in Africa and India, which will produce two billion COVID vaccines, mostly for the uh, developing world. And then there's the pioneering investment vehicle that I talked about that's looking at how Americans can invest in uh, West Africa's uh, rapidly growing uh, housing sector. 
And so I think all of those are opportunities that provide an opportunity to really leverage and crowd in uh, the private sector that can continue and, and be expanded upon. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Song. Um, thank you for your dedication to international public health. This is a particularly critical moment for us to uh, remain vigilant and engaged around uh, COVID-19, but to not forget that there continues to be public health challenges, um, such as ones you've long addressed, um, and that PEPFAR is a great example of a successful US-led bipartisan approach uh, to global public health. Um, I'd be interested in your, your view. The Biden administration has agreed to host the next replenishment of the Global Fund uh, to, fight, to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Has COVID-19 um, negatively or positively impacted international efforts to combat some of the most deadly infectious diseases in the world, including HIV-8? Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, it is obvious Senator, that in the last two years, um, the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, been extremely disruptive and has really taken over the space uh, and crowded the attention that other serious uh, pandemics, i.e. HIV and other endemic diseases like malaria and tuberculosis uh, uh, used to have. And if confirmed, uh, Senator, it would be my goal to make sure that um, we work with our partner countries to elevate and make sure that they understand that HIV AIDS is still a serious threat. And a threat that if we, not, we do not pay at enough attention to it, the gains that we've made over the last 20 years may significantly be disrupted. Uh, but it also offers a unique opportunity, as I said earlier, that um, the platforms that we've all put in place, including developing public-private partnerships. One of those, I recall you uh, engineered uh, with Siemens uh, several years ago when I was uh, still at the US CDC yes. to bring in the private sector and other foundations to help with the efforts. They, I believe what I called, and if confirmed, I'll promote this a lot, what I call partnership for, uh, for action, which means that you bring all the foundations, the private sector together so that we can continue to elevate the fight against HIV AIDS, which is, uh, as I believe, and I've said uh, a serious uh, security threat for countries that we support. Thank you, doctor. Um, and if I could, with the forbearance of the acting chair. Um, and, and by the way, just while I have two members um, here, uh, I just, we, we failed uh, to fund the COVID supplemental and it's something I think is desperately needed uh, globally uh, before we see another variant uh, emerge. Um, if I could, uh, Ms. Meehan, um, thank you uh, for your service under both the Bush and the Obama administrations. I know you've been asked at length uh, about the challenges of the U.S.-Chile relationship, about um, how you would address um, uh, China, which remains Chile's uh, largest partner, and the new president, uh, Gabriel Barish. Um, I'd be interested in um, your comments on the U.S.-Chile astronomy partnership and its potential, um, and then just how you would advise us on um, sort of the future of the left-right divide in Latin America and what the United States, in working more closely, hopefully, with the new administration in Chile, can do to help uh, sort of reset some of the expectations about U.S.-Chile relationships. Sure. Thank you, Senator, for the questions. Uh, astronomy. So the United States has a bilateral uh, science and technology agreement uh, with Chile. Chile is a leader in this area. The Atacama Desert provides some of the 
richest environments for uh, astronomy and research anywhere in the world. The U.S. is already a strong partner in these efforts. And what I find particularly exciting about opportunities, uh, and if confirmed, what I would seek to expand on, um, is that this isn't just a government-to-government opportunity. It's a way to bring in private-public partnerships, a way to include academia, uh, entrepreneurs. And I think given um, the need to focus on STEM in the United States and getting young people excited about science and technology, astronomy offers an interesting way to involve school-to-school and other people-people exchanges um, as a way of strengthening that already strong uh, partnership. With your uh, regards to your question about the left, you know, President Boris has been in office only for a few days, uh, but we have already seen uh, from him a strong defense of human rights. And what I have found particularly heartening um, is that he has made a point of saying that he will condemn uh, violations of human rights, whatever the creed of the government violating them. Uh, he has spoken out strongly uh, against autocratic tendencies in Nicaragua and Venezuela and in defense of the Cuban people following the July 11th protests of last year. Um, so I think this really represents an opportunity for the United States to say this is a shared goal. And he has an opportunity um, to define a new model for what being a, a leader on the left really means in Latin America these days. And if confirmed, I would very very much look forward to engaging um, with President Borch and his administration on this important issue. Thank you, Ms. Meehan. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Just a few last items. So, um, Ambassador Gonzalez, uh, I just wanted to say your, uh, the position at Office of Foreign Missions is very important in Virginia. Um, not only is such a high percentage of our State Department personnel living in Virginia, but a, a very high percentage of uh, members of foreign missions posted to the Washington area live in Virginia, I'll never forget meeting President Duque of Columbia for the first time, and he said, you know, I followed you since you were mayor of Richmond. And I said, why would you do that? He goes, because I was living in Northern Virginia for many of the years when I was posted here, I think, to the World Bank before getting into electoral politics in Columbia. So the, 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 uh, the operation, the efficient operation of these missions um, uh, matters a lot to Virginians, the, the, the health and safety of our Virginians who are deployed overseas but own houses and Virginia matter a lot, so your position is really important to my commonwealth, and I just wanted to put that on the record. It's not just about things thousands of miles away. There's a, there's a home audience that really cares about the work of your, uh, of your office. Uh, Dr. Mayung, I just want to associate myself with comments uh, made by Senator Menendez about just the tragedy in, in Ethiopia, and nobody has been more active on this than Senator Coons. He has done just yeoman's work to try to you know, leverage assets of the United States to bring relief to suffering um, in Tigray and elsewhere in Ethiopia and, and find a path forward to negotiation and peace. Your opening statement was very vivid as you described your excitement and your recollection of seeing grain delivered in bags with the USAID label emblazoned on them. One of the significant challenges now in Ethiopia is difficulty of delivering humanitarian aid in the midst of a crushing famine. And so um, I would look forward to working with you should you be confirmed to make sure that we're really leaning forward on the humanitarian efforts there. And then finally, um, uh, Ms. Mean, I wanted to ask you one more question about Chile. I understand that before you were in foreign service, you had a first career in finance on Wall Street. And I actually think, uh, I think it was Senator Haggerty was asking you questions about U.S.-Chile trade relationship. We've been number one, China's number one, but we still have significant economic ties. How would that finance background be of assistance should you be confirmed? 
Sure. Thank you for the question, Senator Kane. Uh, as you noted, I started my career uh, on Wall Street. Um, and I think this is a particularly critical time for US engagement with the government of Chile to def defend US business interests. Uh, not only do we have a new administration where the president has made um, commitments to the Chilean people uh, about expanding equality that will require some trade-offs um, with, with fiscal decisions, we also have a constitutional convention that is rewriting the entire constitution from scratch. So I think it is a critical time for US engagement. Um, and if confirmed, this would be one of my highest priorities. I would routinely engage with the US business community, with the AmCham, with members of Congress to understand what the priorities of the US business community are and to understand what their concerns are. I would relay those concerns on a regular basis to the government of Chile. I would be a firm supporter uh, and advocate for maintaining adherence to the free trade agreement as they undertake a lot of these legislative and regulatory reforms. And I would also encourage the government of Chile to engage directly with industry representatives as they are considering legislative and regu regulatory changes to understand directly from business what the impact will be on US investment and frankly, the broader investment climate. Um, because in order to deliver on the equality that he has promised for the Chilean people, President Boric will need to manage that, manage that with good fiscal policy um, because he can't achieve those goals without a robust economy to fund it. Thank you very much uh, uh, to all of the witnesses. Congratulations on your nominations. The record of this hearing will remain open until close of business 5 p.m. Friday, March 18, for colleagues that want to submit questions. I would encourage each of you, should questions be submitted to you, that you respond promptly. And with that, the hearing is adjourned.